This morning, we are continuing in our series on road trip. And we've been going through numbers, and today we're in Numbers 21, verses 4 through 9. And this is what it says. From Mount Or, they set out by the way to the Red Sea to go around the land of Edom. And the people became impatient on the way. And the people spoke against God and against Moses. Why have you brought us up out of Egypt just to die in the wilderness? For there's no food, there's no water, and we loathe this worthless food that we have. Then the people, uh, no, then God sent fiery serpents amongst the people, and they bit the people, so much so that the people of Israel died. And the people came to Moses and said, We have sinned, for we have spoken against the Lord and against you. Pray to the Lord that he take away the serpents from us. So Moses went and prayed for the people. And the Lord said to Moses, Make a fiery serpent and set it on a pole. And everyone who is bitten, when they see it, they shall live. So Moses made a bronze serpent and set it on a pole. And if a serpent bit anyone, and they would look at the bronze serpent, they would live. Will you pray with me? Father, as we come and gather this morning, allow us to just take a moment to truly realize how, how blessed we are and the opportunity that we get to worship with others. God, I'm thankful for community. I'm thankful for relationships. We are able to gather together this morning. Father, as we worship, as we sing songs, as we listen to teaching, as we talk with one another, as we contemplate a response through giving, through communion, whatever that is, God, I pray that it is holy and comes out of our heart and it is, it is just, God, it is glorifying to you. God, we come to glorify you, to build community around you. Father, I pray that your Holy Spirit is speaking to us this morning. It is you that is working through us, that is leading our conversations, helping us in our reactions, how we interact with one another. God, that we get to take a moment and listen with you, listen to how you are speaking to each and every one of us. Father, it's in your son's name we pray. Amen. My wife, Ruth, has been watching the Olympics pretty religiously, and I like to tune in uh, every now and then, especially, I, I always enjoy watching like the odd sports, like the ones that come around only every four years, uh, and especially trying to figure out some of the rules, like whether it's like handball or water, water polo, or even like the, the, there was this climbing one I was looking at the other day, and it's so fascinating to just watch uh, the Olympics because it's like, especially those odd sports, like you want to root for the people because they're all excited. Uh, they're, they're, they're really into it. They do something good. And sometimes you're not quite sure what good they actually did outside of maybe something like scoring a goal. And I think sometimes uh, when we read the Old Testament, like we know it's in our Bible and we know it's we're supposed to read it. It's supposed to be good for us. It's supposed to be helpful, yet we don't engage with it frequently enough to fully understand what's happening. And I feel like sometimes that's like the Olympics. You want to get excited. You want to know, but you're kind of perplexed and confused. And if there's always good commentators that take the time to explain the rules, how to win. And when something goes wrong, what's going wrong, or if there's a training issue, or even just an inspirational story to help you better grasp of what's going on, and maybe even build a connection with the person. 
And my hope so far is that the Old Testament, as we've been working through this road trip series, has become, you know, a little bit more fond in your heart. That's not something that you revisit once every four years, but you're able to see how God is at work and inviting a people to go on a journey with him and that God has a desire for his people. So whether it's been John or Richard or myself, my hope is that we've been able to kind of share with you there's, there's a problem, there's a paradox, and then ultimately there's a promise for each of us, even within the Old Testament of what we've looked at so far. So let me give you a previously on for our road trip series. The people of God, the family of God, have been rescued out of slavery. They've been rescued out of Egypt. And they've been gone to the wilderness to to learn how to live for God and learn to live with God, to display God to people. And they get close to the promised land that God is taking them to. But they reject God's promise and then are subject to 40 years of wandering. And as Richard let us know last week, it's not only just this older generation that that rejected God's promise so that they won't enter the land of promise, but now Moses will not enter it as well. So they're wandering and they're settled and they're not settled. And then we start to meet this next generation. And the author begins to describe their journey. Will they repeat? the patterns of their forefathers and foremothers? Will they repeat the same patterns and habits of the generation that is no longer allowed to enter the land of promise? And that's where we find ourselves in today's story. They're wandering, they're not settled, and we meet this next generation. And there's this king who starts and he instigates some conflict in Numbers 21 verse 1. It says, when the Canaanite king of Arad, who lived in the Negev, heard that Israel was coming on this road, he fought against Israel and captured some of the prisoners. Sounds like a dire situation. But then Israel makes a vow to the Lord. If you will hand the people over to us, we will completely destroy their cities. The Lord listened to Israel requests and handed the Canaanites over to them and Israel completely destroyed them and their cities so they named the place Hormah next to this mountain it's interesting because this king initiates a conflict as a way to present Israel from moving through thus moving against God and we see how they react cool this guy moves against us God we're going to co conquer them. We're going to win the competition. We're the better nation. They're losers. We're going to win. So a little bit competitive coming out in relation to the Olympics. Okay, so, so we're going to win. Our nation is better than your nation. And they just don't stop there. They actually make a promise. It says, if you will hand these people over to us, we will completely destroy their cities. Now, at a first glance, this confuses our modern sensibilities, especially since God approves. He says it's good that they would destroy these cities. Now, when we started this series, the challenge was for us to go with God because God is on the go, always toward people and for people. 
So how does the destruction of these people and their cities fit into this statement? Understand how God has chosen to work. He has chosen to work through people, specifically this nation, this family. How God responds in light of Canaan's decision to attack this family says something about God. God is holy. He's totally good. And his goal is to purify evil. So when Israel says, we will completely destroy these people and cities, what they are saying is that they will act as God's cleansing fire within the world. That they will execute his will and his holiness for his sake. So in a materialistic world, by Israel destroying the people completely, their cities and everything, they would be above reproach that they were not acting for their profit because that would have been the claim. Well, you're just trying to expand your nation. You're just trying to get more territory. But by them saying, God, we're willing to destroy everything, what they were actually doing is saying, hey, we know we don't have much. We're wandering in the wilderness and we're acknowledging our dependence on God because they didn't need the wealth from these cities. They could trust God to provide. And it seems as if the younger generation is willing to trust God in a way that the prior generation hadn't. That the younger generation might have learned something from the older generation about belief in God, about believing God. But I, I'm a little bit skeptical at times. And especially when you read a story like this, you have to wonder. I'm not there having a conversation with them. Are they actually sincere? Do they just want a victory, or do they, are they really ready to trust God? And here's where the story continues. They sent out from Mount Hor. And the geography is important, because in order to bypass Edom, as these first couple verses in chapter 21 says, it actually feels like they're going backwards. That the land of promise is up to the north and east. But to bypass Edom and come back around to the Negev, they were actually traveling, traveling away from the land of promise that they were already on the edge of before. So it's kind of like they have all this momentum. We're ready to trust God. God, we're ready to do it. And then the air gets taken out. Kind of like a flat tire. Where you're going, you're ready to go on a journey, and then something punctures a hole and you come to a screeching halt. Because the progress seems like they're going backwards rather than forwards. And so what is their response to this seeming inconvenience? They became impatient because of the journey. And here's what happens out of their impatience. It says they spoke against God and Moses. So they're not just speaking against Moses this time, which is what the older generation had did. And they were kind of, in speaking against Moses, speaking against God. Now they're actually directly speaking against God. Why have you led us from Egypt to die in the wilderness? There is no bread or water, and we detest this wretched food. Now let's take their claims in order. How accurate are their claims? One, God didn't lead them up to the wilderness for them to die. He led them to the land of promise, and they didn't trust God. And therefore, the consequence of their unbelief was wilderness wandering. Two, 
God has continuously provided manna and water for them. Even when Moses didn't do what God had commanded, God still sent water out of the rock for his people. Their impatience caused them to lie about reality. Their impatience caused them to lie about reality. I think we sometimes do the same thing, don't we? When we're impatient about something, when we want things to go a certain way, and we start to process what's going on, and we try to assess or process or review, we can sometimes lie about reality. In fact, one of the kind of methods of counseling when I sit down with people and they're struggling with what's happening in their life. Maybe it's a series of events that, that are direct consequences from their action, or it's, it's something that is just, in fact, happening to them. And they start to spew about, man, what's going on and how they're feeling. I tend to ask them, so what's the lie you're believing right now? And what's the truth you need to hear? Let me ask those two questions a different way. What's rational in this moment, and what's irrational about what you're saying? Let me give you an example. Ruth and I have been watching Ted Lasso on Apple uh, Plus, and it's this, this TV show about a soccer coach, and he's super optimistic. He, he's super positive, but he's got this assistant coach who's, who's gone from basically a locker room attendant to be an assistant coach. And what happens in the story is, is he asks them about just an encounter that they have, and, and then, the, then the assistant coach just kind of blurts out what he's processing in this moment because he's done something wrong. And he's like, I don't want to say something incorrectly because I might screw up and I might get fired. And then I might ha- because I get fired, I don't have enough money. And because I don't have enough money, i got to move in with my parents. And my parents are going to get mad because I moved in with them. And, and, then, and, then, and then I'm going to be ashamed to the family. And then I'm going to lose all my friends because I'm living with my parents. And, and then because I have no friends, I'm, I'm, I'm going to look really. And you can just see the spiral going. It is a great show. And we laugh about that, and we think, man, that, that attendant that, who's now an assistant coach, man, he, he went downhill really quick there. But chances are you've had one or two of those moments in your own life where something irrational, you've internalized it. And you feel shame and you start to play up all the consequences and you forget the truth that is there all along. That Ted, in this case, he's an optimist. He's a coach. And he's around this assistant to make him better. See, God has not left or forsaken his people. But he's trying to cultivate a character in him so that in the difficult moments, in the dryness, in moments when they're tempted to distrust and disbelieve God, that they can be reminded that God is there and he is for them, and that he has provided a way, and that there is still a land of promise for them. And he wants his people to be on the go with him, not in opposition to him, and even when they're on the go with him, to, to when they encounter some difficulty, to not go immediately down that rabbit trail of irrational beliefs, but to return to the truth that God has called them to all along. That God wants them to go with him. 
that they, this people, this family, Israel, are to be the physical manifestation that God has provided a way to deal with the sin and the brokenness of the world. The family of God was never meant to be a derivative of their cultural moment, but rather to be a disruption of it, to point people to himself. That shows people there is a different way to live. You do not have to believe the lies, but in fact, you can believe God. And out of that belief, you can live and have life. See, it's not just the promise to believe in God, but to believe God and who he is. And so God sends snakes throughout the camp. Some of you are get, got the chills and are like, I can't just imagine that right now. I know we've got some spider fears in the room. I'm sure we got some snakes one as well. So God sends these fiery serpents. These came from God, but to get the nation's attention at this critical place in their journey to the land of promise. Because if they kept going in the direction they showed in the previous verses, they would never enter in. They forgot the wandering in the wilderness was the consequence of their unbelief. So God gives them something tangible where they must turn to him. And good news, they in fact do. And he doesn't just send the snakes and say, fend for yourselves. The people have a good leader. And despite their complaints about him, Moses goes to God and receives a way for the people to be rescued. Even though Moses is faced with the same fate as the older generation, and he will not enter the land of promise, yet he fulfills what God is asking him to do. He believes God that the next generation will enter the land of promise and that they needed to be ready. Now, I want to pause here a moment on Moses. He's been subject to a lot of criticism. He, he's even now not allowed to enter that land of promise. He's been lied about. He's been faced with scrutiny. Yet he responds in this moment with the people with repentance that causes an intercession rather than rebellion. Because this seems like such a perplexing encounter. Moses could very easily go, yeah, y'all are getting what you deserve. You didn't believe God again. Suits you right. But Moses reflects God here in this moment. And honestly, God's difficulty in dealing with people. And Moses intercedes for the people. Man, and as I read this story, like, I want to be like Moses. When I'm faced with scrutiny, when I'm faced with uncertainty, when, and maybe even, even lied about, or people don't trust you the way that you want them to, I'll still go to God and intercede for someone. I remember when I first moved to Vancouver, I was trying to build some relationships with some different people, and I had someone who texted me and said, hey, they needed help painting. And so I get in my car, and I start heading down the highway. And then the tire pressure light comes on. I'm all excited, ready to go do some good work. Like, if someone's asked me for help, I'm ready to go. And instantly, all that momentum, excitement, and energy comes to a halt because i got to pull over to the side of the road because I've got a flat tire. And I begin the process of changing the tire. But lo and behold, as I'm getting ready to change the tire, my jack breaks. 
So I'm on the side of the road, the jack breaks, and I'm supposed to go and help someone. I'm supposed to go and do something good. But here in the moment, on the way to do something good, it gets interrupted. It gets halted. See, rather than being the one to help now, I'm now in need of help. And I have no ability to help myself. We've all been there. Where our excitement, our determination comes to a screeching halt. Where we want to do something good for someone and it seemingly happens, we get a flat. <laughs> or maybe it's not a flat, maybe something breaks at the house or Maybe you have a fight with your spouse or just the kids start to freak out. And you're like, no, I, I want to go do something good. But something interrupts or inconveniences. And it's, we have a need. And it's even a need that we're supposed to have the tools to deal with. I was supposed to have a jack and be able to fix my tire. But it's a little embarrassing sometimes when we're supposed to have the tools and then we don't. And we have a need that we can connect cannot correct on our own. Moses cannot save the people, but he knows the one who can. And he's willing to ask for help and go to God. See, in our moments when we honestly don't have an ability to even just help ourselves, and we want to help others, the source of our strength is not our own determination or our own tools, but in God because he always provides and so God gives Moses instruction for a way for the people who are bit by the snakes to be saved. And all they got to do is look at this bronze snake on this pole, and they're cured. They're bit, and they can look, and they're healed. And now, even as I talk about that story, it seems kind of odd. I mean, if you think about it literally, snake bite, you're not venom, no antidote, no bandage, no, like, go to the priest and have them pray. Look up on a snake on a on a pole. It seems an odd way to be healed. But thankfully, we have a clarifying passage in the New Testament. There's this Pharisee, this religious ruler, who's, who, who's well-schooled in the law and the way of God. But he's confused by this guy, Jesus. And so because he's a little embarrassed, because he doesn't quite have the tools to grasp or to understand what Jesus is saying and why Jesus is doing what he's doing, he shows up at night to talk to Jesus. You might know him as Nicodemus or as I like to call him, Nick at night. <laughs> and he shows up and he asks a question. What, Jesus, what, what do I do? I don't, I'm supposed to have the tools to deal with it. I don't have the capacity. I don't understand. And this is what Jesus says. Just as Moses lifted up the snake in the wilderness, so the Son of Man must be lifted up, so that everyone who believes in him will have eternal life. For God so loved the world, in this way, that he gave his one and only son, so that whoever believes in him will not perish, but have eternal life. For God did not send his son into the world to condemn the world, but to save the world through him. Anyone who believes in him is not condemned, but anyone who does not believe is already condemned, because he has not believed in the name of the one and the only son of God. 
this is the judgment. The light has come into the world and people love darkness rather than the light because their deeds were evil. For everyone who does evil hates the light and avoids it so that his deeds may not be exposed. But anyone who lives by the truth comes to the light so that his works may be shown to be accomplished by God. See, the image of a snake on a pole was a foreshadow to the Son of God being hung on a tree so that anyone may know and may see that they are loved by God, that God's Son was sent into the world. I just love how Jesus ties this remarkable event in. And just as Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, so must the Son of Man be lifted up, and he will. And that whoever believes in him shall not perish, but have eternal life. And you can have that. And it's perplexing. It's confusing. It almost sounds too good to be true. And that's the point. That God moved on your behalf when we're all bitten by sin and brokenness and we have no hope. We don't have the tools to deal with it on our own. That we can look to Jesus and know that we have a Savior who has come to rescue. And not only that, but he has judged the sin and brokenness. Judged the very thing that bites us and says that that is condemned and that we don't have to be. You almost think about that. If you're familiar with the Bible, the, the term serpent or the, the serpent, it, it goes back to Genesis chapter 3, where the serpent's not a nice thing. It actually tricks the first human. And it's often used as pictures of evil in the scriptures. However, the bronze snake in this moment, in Numbers 21, is a metal associated with judgment in the Bible, because the bronze must be made by passing through the fires of judgment. So the bronze serpent in this moment does not speak of evil, but evil having been judged. Just as Jesus, who knew no sin, became sin for us on the cross. And our sin was judged in Jesus. A bronze serpent is a picture of evil being judged and dealt with. And that's the promise. The sin, that the brokenness that we deal with experientially and that we have to wrestle with in our own souls can be dealt with. And that there's a remedy. And actually how God's judgment becomes a source of life. That's the paradox. That God's judgment actually becomes a source of life. Because the people were not saved by doing anything but looking to the bronze serpent. We're not saved by doing anything, but by looking to Jesus and responding to him, by actually believing that the remedy is available to us and we can be transformed and we can express that and we can live that. You know what's interesting, though, is this is not the end for the bronze serpent in Numbers. Actually, in Later on in the scriptures, in 2 Kings, King Hezekiah brings this bronze serpent back. What he actually does is he wants the people to be inspired 
that God is for them and with them. And so he actually like chops it up and he gives it and spreads it around. And he wants them to put their trust in this bronze serpent rather than God. And it goes from this beautiful thing where we, people could look to, found salvation and find trust and be recovered from their bites to now being brought down to just something good and kind of a trick or a token. It's almost as if the people in this time period didn't learn from their ancestors that they could believe God and instead pulled out that bronze serpent just in case God wasn't real. About a year ago, Ruth and I took kids to the park, and upon returning from our walk, we had another flat tire. I remember calling our tech because my jack was still broken and I hadn't replaced it. So I had to call someone to come get me and do it. And so the tech comes up and, and, and he gets it out and, and he uses his, his, the, the lug nut. He's, tra he's trying to turn it. And then he, that's not working. So he's got to pull out the gun. And what he learns through his encounter is that we actually break um, the thing and then he breaks his gun because someone had tightened the lug nuts on our wheel so tight that it actually broke everything we needed to get them off. We had to get a tow, and it was crazy. But they had been over-tightened. And I remember talking to the tech, and I asked him, hey, why does that happen? And he says, well, because some guy who was working on your tires last got nervous. And they over-tightened it just in case they got too loose. We was preventing them. I'll tighten them a little more just in case they come loose. And I think sometimes today when we hear a clear connection about our need for Jesus, we all have things in our life where we tighten our grip onto, just in case this Jesus stuff doesn't work out, just in case he doesn't provide the remedy that I so desperately want him to provide. But when we, our grip is tight on the just in case thing, that everything we need to actually loosen them actually breaks down and does more damage. And that's what happened. We had to replace a whole lot of things with that wheel because someone thought we'd just tighten them a little bit more just in case. You all have these things in your life, whether it's the romance of a spouse or a job or a kid's, the next big idea, or maybe even the religious notion of showing up to church. I'll put a little more emphasis. I'll hedge my bets. I'll make sure that they're good, your finances, your family, just in case it seems like God won't provide or he doesn't provide a way out. And what happens is we undermine the very hope that we're supposed to bring to the world. And it leaves a gaping hole and wrecks our lives. Because see, Jesus doesn't just fill in the gaps of a flat tire. He gives us a whole new tire. He gives us something that we can actually run through life on. See, when we live just in case, we think, well, if Jesus doesn't provide a way out, then I'll provide my own way. 
And for many of us, we so desperately want to tell people that they are loved, that they're not alone, that they can be part of a forever family because God has loved the world. But yet we fail, fail to live loved ourselves. We fail to believe God, not that he just loves the world, but that he loves us and provides a way for us. And so my hope for us is that we're not just in case people, but that we are people who live loved because God has loved us and that we can first and foremost look to Jesus and know who he is and what he has done. And so it starts with recognizing that we are loved and then out of that love, we can live it and let others know that they are loved. Whether it's putting values like give over get or progress over perfection or send over stay or even story over sin into practice. So as I wrap up my time with you today, just ask, what's the just in case in your life? The thing that you've been holding on to just in case you know, God doesn't come through. Or just in case I get a little weary and I need to go somewhere else. This is a time, John's going to come up and lead us in a time of response. I don't know what it is for you, but this is the perfect time to respond, to give it over to Jesus, to identify it and surrender it and say, I'm not going to look to that anymore, but I'm going to take a tangible step and trust Jesus. And allow him to not just fill in the gaps, but to give you something new entirely. Let's pray. God, you are good and you have sent Jesus. And I'm thankful for that hope and for that promise. God, I pray that if someone needs to say yes to Jesus or needs to just respond in a different way, that they do so this morning. God, I pray for, the, for how you are just working and stirring in our souls that we truly surrender to you and that we can live out that surrender, and that we can start a conversation of what that looks like in our everyday life. Thank you for your love and for your grace. It's in Jesus' name I pray. Amen.